Hi everyone. Today we're talking to Matthew Lopez Jensen. We talked about using technology such as Google Street Views to photograph the landscape, as well as seeing the land as a place that collects history and seeing the act of taking pictures as an anti-death impulse. Matt is an environmental artist with a land-based approach to many projects. He engages with social practice, and a lot of his works are community-based participatory projects. Matt is a Guggenheim Fellow in Photography, and his work is in the collections of the Metropolitan Museums of Art, the National Galleries of Art, and the Brooklyn Museum, among other institutions. Here, he talks about what he's been working on. Right now, I'm really working a lot in my own neighborhood and in my own community. In one way, if I go to a place that I don't live and I'm not from, then I have to work one way that usually engages the local nonprofits or that. Engages the community that's already there, that's been working those histories, and my job is really just to try to elevate and support and promote work that's already been done、um, in those places or work that can be done. So yeah, what ends up being is like a lot of work on a maybe just a photo project or a, a walking project. So months and months of research and work, and then what do you do with all that knowledge and that information and those experiences? I find different ways to share that and. Sometimes it's just photos on a wall, but ideally it's usually walks and maps, conversations, things that can last a little bit longer than just pictures on a wall. Things that、um, mean more to the people in that community. Yeah, and then in my own neighborhood of Norwood in the Bronx, I'm working on a whole bunch of projects. Like we have an abandoned forest. I'm trying to revive that with the community's help, kind of as an art project. I'm working on a rooftop garden、uh, in the South Bronx. All projects that are people touching dirt and people planting plants sounds fun. Can you talk about one of the artist walks that you led? Maybe talk about what you paid attention to on the road. So every time I do an artist walk, it's not a tour. It's always an experience with a bunch of strangers where we all get together, and it's more of a happening. So there's a tradition in sort of the fluxus movements of happenings where. They're kind of scripted, unscripted experiences, and so what I'll do on an art walk is design a ninety-minute to two-hour experience that results in something with the group of people. So I did one walk at Storm King, which is a four hundred-acre sculpture park, and in that walk, we were talking about the history of the landscape, the history of preserving sight lines, and. Preserving distance and not building in landscapes. Not even just the landscape is protected, but the view. So the view is protected. And so what we did was we walked around looking for places within this sculpture park where there should never be a sculpture. So we protected a view and we voted on it. And so it was a fun exercise. It was a conversation starter about protecting views. So we found a spot by the river where there we declared there could never be any artwork intervention. And then in New York, I've done a lot of walks, and those are oftentimes looking at objects left behind by people, by nature, and collecting objects sometimes as an activity. Having other people share their their stories along the way is an activity. But sometimes the walks create this opportunity for, for even for New Yorkers who don't know a part of the city well, to feel safe and to go on this strange path and just have an adventure that they'll never forget, even though it's subtle and. It's always kind of amazing to to watch people see places for the first time and to build those memories collectively. So, what would you say is the purpose of these walks? Like, what would you want people to gain from them? 
Well, I have so much fun making the work. I want to share some of that fun. And that fun is not looking at my work in the gallery. That fun is doing exactly what I did in the landscape and walking through these places and seeing birds and seeing plants and smelling things and hearing things and wondering about things. All that stuff that happens when your body is physically moving through a place. It's such a different thing than looking at a work in a, in a box or in a building um, or on a screen. And so what I love is that all of the people who will go on that walk, it's sort of like a performance piece because you don't remember, I don't remember really what happens because I'm engaged and having to be the artist there. But I'll run into people five years later and they'll just like see me on the street or remember being on a walk with me. And it's super exciting that they remember that experience. And so what I think about a lot in my work is our relationship to experience and to landscape and how our brain kind of collects information when we're moving through space versus when we're in a gallery or in a, on, on the screen. And so what I love is that all these folks who go on these walks, if you remind them of that two hour experience 10 years ago, they can close their eyes and then go right back to that experience and remember it. And I don't know if that happens so much with artwork. Yeah, and I found that your work is very typological. Like you would collect artifacts, images of trees, suns, stones. Yeah, so typologies are this sort of a very formal tradition in photography of taking the same picture of different things and showing them together in grids. And so that history, as it sort of spills into my work, what I do is have a little more fun with it. And a lot of times the things I'm photographing are not beautiful. They're not majestic. They're not industrial. They are really subtle. But what happens when you collect them, all of a sudden you've exposed something to the viewer. And so each one of the things I do collect, it exposes further the relationship between people and that place. One of my first big photographic projects was 1,017 photographs of 3,960 spruce trees. Every spruce tree in this one town. They're beautiful, but not all of them. Some of them are broken, some of them are cut down, some of them are plastic. So I was looking for every single one as a way to categorize and catalog them. But the real impetus was to show the relationship between the town and this tree because the trees are there because this used to be an industrial center. There used to be immigrants from the north, northern parts of Europe. Those immigrants brought the trees. They planted them. Everyone else got used to them. They planted more of them. The mills all disappeared. That immigration wave ended. Nobody's around from those days, but yet these trees are still alive. And so by photographing them all and putting them all together, it helps the existing community understand their relationship with that tree. And so if you take that way of thinking and apply it to any of the other collections, it still sort of plays out in certain ways. And so when I have a project that's about picking things up, the same thing happens. Whatever I've collected and photographed and re-exhibited helps to expose people's pre-existing relationship to that land. And especially with objects, because I've found pre-colonial objects. I've found objects from the 15, 16, 1700s, 1800s, basically every decade, all sitting in the same landscape. So that dirt just kind of collects history. So the project you just mentioned is called Park Artifacts the Bronx, and you presented physical artifacts in that project. And I noticed how in another project titled The Wander Under Photography Cabinets of Curiosity, you presented photographs of those artifacts. Can you talk about the reason behind those differences? So the Park Artifacts project that I have about 20,000 artifacts from all over Manhattan, New York City, basically all over New York City. The Wonder Under is a good example of a specific site, Brooklyn Bridge Park, 
a tight collection from just that landscape. And within that collection, there's 450 objects. And some of them are over a thousand years old. Some of them are millions of years old because they're just rocks, but some of them look like rocks, but they are plastic. And so by photographing them, it really unpacks a lot of the magic where you'll have something that is 3000 years old look as kind of similar as something that is brand new or just fell off of a car. And so by flattening them and having them on exhibit, it lets people, pulls people in and they just get to like wonder what these things are. And then they start to get closer and they look. And that's really what you want people to do is just look more. And then if you're there as a guide, you can say, oh, that actually is a, is a spear point, an obsidian spear point found in Dumbo. It's probably 3,000 years old. And that is a piece of foam from a car. And that is probably 10 years old. I'm wondering how you know the age of an artifact, like the thing you accidentally found. Well, in that case, we actually had a, an archaeologist that I was able to run some things by. Um, a lot of sites have archaeologists on staff. And then any archaeologist will tell you that your best tool as an archaeologist is usually the internet. So if you find an object, chances are you can find a version of it in a collection somewhere, and you can begin to use that to date the object. So there's this project where you are in a car ride and you continue to take photographs of a setting sun until it disappears. It's this sort of documentation of an action that's I found also present in many projects of yours. Can you talk about those projects? Yeah, so I think you're talking about Rainbow Around the Sun and that I did about 10 years ago around the time I was doing other projects that were looking directly at the sun with digital technology, either street view imagery or with my actual camera shooting the sun or shooting through bus windows, plane windows, train windows. So basically I was trying to put the focus of the viewer on various lenses and technology that separate us from landscape. And so the street Google Street View is a, you know, at the time was a brand new technology that allows us to be somewhere without being there. You know, when I'm in an airplane looking down on a mountain, I'll never be there, but I'm seeing it. And so I think that's one of the most bizarre, magical tensions about technology is our minds can see something and be there and not actually be there. It's like, I've never been to Alaska, but I've photographed Alaska. I've never been to the Yukon Territory and the most unimaginably inhospitable mountaintops. But I have pictures of like the snow melting on them that I've taken from airplanes. And so it's a weird state of mind that almost all of us have experienced at this point because we've all been in a plane um, or we've been on the internet. And so what I was really interested in that whole arc of work, which continues in different ways today, is what does technology do to how we perceive landscape and space? And so when I'm using the sun, I'm using it as a sort of symbol for that technology and for the sort of ancientness of that symbol of the sun being a representation of knowledge and of, of light being kind of a historical representation in almost every artwork. And it's just, it's an endlessly huge topic, light in the sun. So I'm kind of using it in a new digital way. So how do you find those suns? Do you just spend 10 hours every day on Google Street Views? Well, when, when I was doing that particular project called the 49 States, that was me spending hours and hours on Google Street View, looking for places where the landscape photograph was beautiful as an object. Like just, it was formally, there was something interesting about it. There was something human about it, something small, a gesture, a lamp post or a, a car turning or a street sign or a, um, 
a flag, uh, all these little moments, sprinklers going off, really humble, subtle moments that never meant to be public information, but now they're there forever online. So I would walk around on the internet looking for those moments, but also when the sun was low and hitting the camera of the Google lens directly. And so, yeah, that was just a lot of hours looking and a lot, a lot of hours in Photoshop kind of bringing those um, bands of landscapes together into single images. How do you see your work in relation to other artists who also use Google Map, like John Rothman, Doc Ricard, and Michael Wolf? Yeah, at the time, there were a few artists who, who were doing it, and everybody was kind of has their own different approach to it. I guess I was using mine more in like a, a collection sort of way, similar to other typologies, where I really wanted people to consider the ramifications of the technology. As soon as I did a few of those pieces, it's the most unfun way of working ever. Like all of my work is about being outside. Do I want to spend the rest of my life looking around the internet for cool pictures? Absolutely not. Like that's what the internet's about. The internet's already doing that. I mean, the Instagram is great for that. People find everything that's cool about everything online. It doesn't, I don't need to do it anymore. But when I was doing it, I was just trying to make a point, talk about the history of the road trip, the history of photography, the history of, light and the camera but the minute i finished it like i was back outside working and so those pieces are that piece and that work is always in opposition to the reality that i prefer which is being outside that those are kind of documents of me in a plane or in a bus or in a train trying to do something beautiful trying to make art about landscape but also stuck in the middle of this technology how do you think that technology has changed our relationship with the landscape other than the example you just mentioned? I mean, there's just endless ways. I mean, the most simple devices changed our relationship to landscape. A pine tree growing in the forest became a mast on a ship, and that ship became technology and transformed the landscape. So it's like there is no beginning or end of technology. It goes from satellites to ships to compasses, to being able to draw navigational maps, like those were tools. So for the past 600 years, a thousand years, people have been inventing tools and those tools instantly transform the landscape in different ways. So you could just pick a very specific technology and you could probably write a book on how the landscape has changed because of that one technology. And cameras are certainly a big one of those, especially when they became available to the public. So all of a sudden in the 30s, 40s, 50s, people could own their own camera and they could take pictures of the landscape and they could share those pictures. And as soon as that began, it sort of began the history of like traveling just to see a place because someone else saw that place. Now Instagram, you know, that happens to a place in a week. If it's Instagram famous, all of a sudden there's a million people in that one spot. But the same thing was happening throughout history. As soon as people could get cameras in their hands, they were going to places just to make pictures. And so that was instantly transforming those landscapes the beauty was being bulldozed for hotels and for roads. And so, yeah, there's never a good, there's never a good connection, unfortunately, between landscape and technology. Landscape always loses. Why do you think landscape always loses? Losing what ways? Well, there's always somebody who can figure out a way to make money by selling what's there. Whether it's just dirt or stones or whether it's minerals or whether it's beauty or a view, you know, a beautiful view, too, too many people know about it. Pretty soon, there'll be houses on half of it. So those people can see the view. And yeah, it's a long history of this game.
Yeah. So since we're talking about technology, and I think that one of the most ubiquitous of them is our phone. And how do you think that this happens a lot? Like when we are experiencing something, and then suddenly we think about using the phone camera to document it, and then we're just pulled out of that experience. Yeah, I mean, it's just sort of a natural. At this point, the only way to prevent that is to just one keep your phone off. Don't bring it with you if you want to have a certain experience. But it is just an impulse. I mean, I I had a flip phone up until last year, and unfortunately, when the pandemic came, it forced me to have to get a smartphone. And I still fall victim to that impulse of like, oh my god, flowers, picture, send it to someone. But I'm not on Instagram for a whole bunch of reasons, and that's one of them. Well, the only person I share it with is my husband at this point. I just bug him with pictures of plants and bugs all day, but I'm not on Instagram sharing it with the world.、Um, so if you're worried about Experiencing landscape, then just don't share everything. Just don't even take a picture. It's okay to forget things because you're gonna have new experiences, and it's it's sort of a charming impulse, I think, to want to save a moment. But it's also like a bigger idea. You know, you're probably connected even larger to like trying to prevent our own deaths by somehow photographing everything. It's like this anti-death impulse、um, to take pictures of things. As somehow we can take it with us, because you can. You can all of a sudden you can take a landscape with you in your phone. Can't take your phone with you when you die, but you can at least take the phone with you for a little while.、Um, so it's yeah, it's it's good and bad. I mean, it's not an awful thing to to want to remember something. If it becomes a pathology and it's ruining your experiences, then it's a problem. So I want to talk about this project called "You're the Center of Something." It's one of my favorites, and it is quote. An optical demonstration layered with the poetics of being. On a sunny day, a perfect rainbow whirls around one's shadow. At night, under a single bright bulb, a halo of white light whirls around one's shadow. Everyone can see your shadow, but only you can see your halo. Yeah, so it's called "You Are the Center of Something." It's again about looking at reflections about the sun,、um, about our perception, our eyeballs as lenses. But it also is about walking in urban space. If you've ever a crosswalk, you know the white lines in the street. Well, when they paint those fresh, they cover them with reflective sand. And that reflective sand, if you happen to be there the day or two before the rain cleans it off, and if it's sunny out and you're walking, you're looking down. All of a sudden, you're surrounded by a perfect halo. And so this project, Rainbow Around the Sun, came from walking, but it was installed as a sculpture in Dallas, and so there was a big billboard. Of reflective sand that said you are the center of something, and then when you're walking around in the parking lot, you would see a, a perfect halo around you. So it's a way of turning something as banal as a parking lot into this sort of beautiful metaphysical experience where you're experiencing a halo, and everyone else is seeing a halo too, but nobody can see each other's halo; they can only see their own halo. Also, I notice how your photos are not trying to. Glamorize a scene, like you kind of just approach it in a very natural way. What do you mean? Can you give me an example? What do you mean by glamorize? Like you wouldn't put a lot of filter on it. Like for example, in Rainbow Around the Sun, I feel like you're just taking snapshots of that sun. Yeah, I'm letting the world make the decision in that case for me. Like I'm just there and taking the pictures when I'm photographing something. Like during the day, any photograph is a glamour shot. That's just The reality: any picture is going, to, whether it's good, bad, or ugly, 
the fact that it was picture worthy is glamorizing that thing. I mean, I will try to take pictures of really boring, ugly things. I will try to take those pictures very well. Like I'll try to take the best picture of a rock and glamorize that rock. Cause I want people to love that rock. I guess you, one way to glamorize a landscape would be to photograph it at six in the morning on a foggy, rainy day when it looks like magic, when the reality is nine times out of 10, it's sunny and hot right there. And so I have no problems taking that sunny, hot photograph. The sun is usually out when I'm working. The sun is usually out in my photographs. The skies are blue. There are shadows. I want that heat of the day to come through a lot of those pictures. But whereas a lot of landscape photographers, there's a tradition which, well, I never shoot when the sun's out. Like I only shoot on cloudy days and those pictures are beautiful to look at, but they don't represent that landscape in its most common reality. And so generally I like to make sure that kind of what you see is what you're going to go and see when you go to the landscape. I don't want to create some version of the landscape that nobody can ever experience. Yeah, and let's zoom out and talk about your background. Because I know that you have a political science degree back in undergrad, and the work you're doing right now has this element of activism. And maybe that's somehow tied to your educational background. Uh, when I was in undergrad, I didn't really know what being an artist meant. I didn't have that upbringing as a kid. Um, I grew up with parents who just worked in hospitals or was a carpenter. And so this idea of an, of an artist, never heard of it really. I knew I could take good pictures. And so that was my entry point into art. Um, so I did art and I did poli-sci and then things were just a different version of awful back then. And so I didn't want to go into art right away. I wanted to get into politics thinking that maybe I could put my energy into good causes. And I did that for four or five years. And then I was just wanting to find more creative ways to bring change. And so then I went and got my MFA. And once I had that, I was able to spent a lot of time working and reimagining how to talk about landscape and do landscape projects that go around potential barriers you might find in politics. How did you first get interested in environmental issues? That just honestly goes back to when I was like five years old. I think I just spent a lot of time in trees, like just sitting in trees and fishing and being in the woods. And so that kind of just infected me. And then, you know, there was a cartoon called The Planeteers that probably inspired me. When I was a little kid, I would get into any cause. I would try to save trees around my neighborhood. And then that just kind of continued as an artistic impulse, always kind of going towards trees and, and nature and landscape in different ways. Never so much about perfect beauty, untouched nature, but more about always this relationship between people and the nature around them. This is the end of the episode. If you want to see more of Matt's work, please visit jensen-projects.com.